we're living in that day, essentially. Like we're living in that phase where God has begun the act of deconstructing what man has become and is with the preparation of a new kingdom. Uh, and so what does that mean for my life then? If I inhabit this point in history, right? If I inhabit this space in time where God is actively in the process of deconstructing human empire and the suffering that emerges from that empire, then how does that impact my life here and now? And that is, you know, and I've done this study with, with secular people who've never been to church before um, and approached it from this angle. And it's been like, boom, it's like, wow, like my life, you've just given me an actual reason to live. I have recently been reflecting on my life and my spiritual journey I've been on since accepting Christ in my heart as a young adult. So much of the first few years of the journey were connected to learning and discovering many things that I've been teaching and interviewing others on this podcast. I can remember thinking if I could just understand biblical truth and the God who it originated with, I would be able to put it into practice in my life on my own. However, what I was surprised to discover was that truth was only the beginning. The journey wasn't so much about truth as it was about trusting God as he led me down the straight path to his kingdom. The purpose of truth wasn't salvation in and of itself, but rather to keep me from going down the wrong path. If I wasn't willing to walk where the truth was leading me on the path, no matter how difficult the way looked at the time, then practically speaking, the truth was of no more value to me than ignorance. In the same way, truth that serves no guiding purpose on the path also does me no good. In fact, some truth can actually become a distraction if I'm spending so much of my time trying to understand it that it serves no practical purpose in my life. Even worse, I might even start believing that intellectually solving the riddle is the same as obeying what it's telling me to do. Paul acknowledged this danger when he said, Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. In other words, knowledge without a heartfelt willingness to follow the path where the knowledge is leading is the very essence of Phariseeism. Unfortunately, when it comes to the doctrine of the investigative judgment, many Christians have fallen into the latter category rather than the former. For many, the doctrine's intellectual magnitude has eclipsed its practical purpose in the spiritual journey God has called us all to walk in these last days. According to the book of Daniel, the prophecy was to be sealed until the time of the end, and it was at that time that it would serve a practical purpose for God's people navigating the unique challenges and deceptions of the last days. Unfortunately, in an effort to understand and prove the answer, many have forgotten the question. It is taught and yet not understood because we have distanced ourselves too far away from the question of justice that is asked. Our prosperity has blinded us from the real hope the investigative judgment applies to those suffering under the abuses of human empire today. In an effort to justify ourselves, we forgot to stay on the path by seeking justice for the oppressed. To talk about this more, I invited Pastor Marcos Torres to come on the podcast. Marcos is a prolific blogger, podcaster, and author of several books, including his latest, The Death and Resurrection of the Investigative Judgment, which he discusses in greater detail on the episode today. 
Currently, Marcos is pastoring in the great outback of Australia with his wife and children. You can keep up with everything he is doing on his website, thestorychurchproject.com. I started the interview by asking him what motivated him to write a book about the 2300-day prophecy that many Christians struggle to find practical relevancy with today. So I got to go back a little bit, maybe back up a little bit uh, to give a full answer to that to that question. Uh, tell, tell a little bit of a story, I suppose, sure. myself. Um, when I was when I went to Southern Adventist University to study theology, I think it was my second year there. I took a studies in Daniel class with Don Leatherman, Professor Don Leatherman, um, and uh, one you know one of the assignments in the class was you had to do a research paper on some aspect of the book of Daniel. And I chose the investigative judgment. I wanted to do a research paper on that um, precisely because I just was not convinced that it was valid, right? Um, And up to that point in my journey as an Adventist, um, my journey as an Adventist wasn't exactly the most positive. I was, um, I'd sort of fallen into the heresy of um, last generation theology, um, perfectionism. I was emotionally messed up. Um, you know, I wouldn't blame it entirely on last generation theology, but last generation theology, when I mixed it with the um, things that I was wrestling with in my life, it, it just caused more harm, you know? Um, and so there was a part of me that was like, I don't really even like Adventism that much. You know, like I'm pretty messed up in the head. <laughs> um, mm. A lot of anxiety. Um, I'll tell you what, I remember one time I was walking through the uh, library at the, um, the Southern Adventist University, uh, the school library, and I saw this book in the bookshelf. It was written by Martin Weber, and the title just leapt at me. And the title of the book was My Tortured Conscience. And I was like, that's exactly what I feel like. I had never worded it that way, you know, but it, it was just sort of like, yeah, that's me. That's, that's my experience, you know? So anyways, um, so when I came to this whole idea of the investigative judgment, I was like, you know, I, I'm not convinced that it's valid. I had a few friends give me like a Bible study on it and I was still like, ah, I don't know. So I decided I'm going to do the research paper on that. And I did the research paper on it. And long story short, by the time I was through reading the critics, you know, Teresa Beam and her book, uh, It's Okay Not to Be a Seventh-day Adventist, attacked the investigative judgment quite heavily. And a few others, I can't remember, I think Rat's Laugh was another one. And, you know, a few others, Can't can Write maybe. Uh, I can't remember all the names. But, you know, I read through them. I read through their attacks. Uh, the Desmond Ford thing as well went through that. And, um, and of course, you know, read through some of the people who were defending the investigative judgment, like George Knight, Marvin Moore, etc. And, and, of course, spent time in the Bible, um, looking at the original languages, the context, and things like that. So by the time it was all said and done, I wrote a 21-page paper where I basically concluded, hey, this thing is valid. As far as I'm concerned, like, it's valid. Um, I cannot get away from it without adopting theological constructs that I find way more dubious um, than what I'm contending with here. And, and that's one of the things. Like, I'm not, I'm not an absolutist about anything. Um, and uh, maybe that's because I, I work with, you know, secular people so much. You know, having an absolutist mentality is one of the quickest ways to turn them off. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's not a matter of I can 100% prove, you know. For me, it's a matter of is there... Is there enough rational grounds to hold this position? And do you have to pay a bigger price 
to not hold it, to hold an alternative position. And that's how I felt. I felt like, you know, there's, there's definitely plenty here to hold this position. Yes, you can hold other positions. There, you know, you can, you can sort of say, hey, here's an alternative reading. Um, but for me, I felt like I have to pay a bigger price for those alternative readings than, than, you know, than what I have to, to just take this as, you know, what I saw Daniel saying. Investigative judgment in Daniel 8.14 and just how it unfolds in, in Daniel 9. It was just really clear. So I was convinced. I was like, all right, this is, this is valid. And of course, getting the sort of soteriological issues out of the way, the whole like, oh, the judgment's happening. You have to be perfect. You know, once I got that out of the way, I was like, oh, okay, I can wrestle with this more. Because, you know, it's not about that. It's not about perfectionism. Um, so anyways, yeah, so I came to that conclusion, wrote the paper, submitted it, you know, um, and I've been convinced that the doctrine is valid ever since. But the problem is that even though I was fully convinced of the doctrine's validity, its utility continued to elude me. Mm-hmm. Um, and by its utility, what I mean is like, okay, I get this. It's cool. So now what? You know, like, what difference does it make in my life here and now? And I think it was in one of Martin um, Weber's books that he wrote on the investigative judgment as well, where he talked about having a group of pastors get together during the Desmond Ford crisis, and they studied it out, and they finally were like, yeah, all the pieces fit, it's true, it's valid, and then some of the other pastors were like, okay, yeah, it's true and valid, but seriously, what's the point? Like, I trust in Jesus, I know him, why does this matter at all? Um, and they kind of got stuck there, you know? <laughs> um, and, and this is a problem that I had. Um, I was like, yeah, I can explain its validity, but I can't really tell you why it matters. I have a few answers where you kind of stitch them together and you build a sort of a, a wall of, of meaning, but they're just not very compelling, at least to me. Um, and that's the problem I found with many millennials as well. Uh, in fact, in, in the, uh, I don't know if you've ever gotten a chance to see it, but you can actually Google this, the 21st Century Seventh-day Adventist Connection Study. You can actually Google that. Um, and, and what they found in this study, um, where they, they researched millennials and their relationship to Adventism, was that the doctrine of the pre-Advent investigative judgment sanctuary, all that, it was at the bottom of the pile of accepted beliefs by millennials. Um, you know, so there were, it's sort of have this list, like which are the beliefs that are most accepted and the beliefs that are least accepted. So at the bottom, you know, were things like the remnant and the investigative judgment. Mm. Um, so I think only about 46 or maybe 44, something like that percent. Um, I uh, don't quote me on that somewhere in the 40 percentile range, um, of millennials, um, had a, a belief in the investigative judgment. And on the onset, you could be like, oh, that's not so bad. 40 something percent. That's almost half, but it's like, yeah. The problem is, though, that this belief, the investigative judgment, is so central to Adventism. It's like so central that you can't get away with a 40 percentile, oh, yeah, I believe it. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, if it's central, like if it's core, it's key, that's really bad, you know? Um, and so what I have found over the years, even as a pastor studying the Bible with young people and navigating the investigative judgment, is that for most of them, it's either too complicated uh, too boring or just plain irrelevant. Like, why in the world does it matter? Um, and so for me, that was my um, that was my motivation. You know, it was how do I figure out why this matters? You know, can I finally sit down and answer the question of relevance when it comes to this this belief? And um, interestingly, I, I spoke with Clifford Goldstein recently, and he told me he was on the same journey. He's like, look, we did a lot of work. 
um, in the last sort of decade with defending the validity of the judgment. But I think now it's time we actually start talking about why it matters, you know? So he had read through some of my book and, and wanted to have a chat because he thought that the ideas that I was presenting were really compelling. And that's the bottom line, you know? And so I'd probably, um, I'd probably summarize or, or end, you know, <laughs> my long-winded answer to this question by saying, look, I, I don't really care if, if people buy my book or not, right? But what I want you to do is I want you to wrestle with that question. Like, why does it matter? Um, and that you find an answer that doesn't just make sense to you, but that it makes sense to those who are not Adventists as well. Because whatever we have to say, it must have meaning and applicatory power outside of the collective us. Or, or else it's just an insider secret, right? That, that doesn't mean much outside of our own cultural repository. Um, and so again, my short answer uh, to get back to your initial question is that this doctrine matters. Um, because just thinking back to your initial question, like why, why do you find it important? I think was the question. Um, I'd say short answer. Um, it, it matters. This doctrine matters because it dances uh, with one of humanity's most existential questions. And that's the question, how long? Right, um, and we see this in Daniel eight thirteen, and it's one of the points I make in the book. Like, we have based so much of Adventist identity on Daniel eight fourteen, which is the answer. What I'm saying is, we need to base our identity not just on the answer, but on the question. Mm. Daniel eight thirteen, right? The question itself has to be part of who we are. Um, when we base our identity on an answer, we become a people of answers who are always rushing to give an answer without actually inhabiting the agony of the question. And I think that's what has messed us up for so long when it comes to the doctrine's meaning is we haven't, we haven't inhabited the agony of the question how long, right? Like what kind of question is that question? This is a question uh, that I argue in the book. This is a question from suffering, right? Like you mm -hmm. don't ask how long when your present experience is desirable. You ask how long when the agony of your present experience has, has reached a point where you're at breaking point, you know, like you just can't take it anymore. Um, and so, you know, some examples I give is like, this is the kind of question that a slave would ask, you know, after having been beaten by his, um, by his master, you know, as he lays down to bed at night with his back torn to shreds, you know, how long am I going to put up with this, you know, and it's the question a lot of people are asking right now, you know, socially isolated, stuck at home. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, how long do we have to do this for it, you know? Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a deep question, man. It's such a deep question and we've rushed by it so quickly because we're like so eager for the answer. And it's like, no, wait, stop. Let's inhabit the question a little bit. Um, and, and what I think is that what this doctrine demonstrates through us through materiality and history is that God has set a day in which he will begin to deconstruct empire and suffering, which is at the core of that question. Um, and I, I unravel that. I can we talk about that a little bit more. Um, mm. And that day, we're living in that day, essentially. Like we're living in that phase where God has begun the act of deconstructing what man has become and is with the preparation of a new kingdom. Uh, and so what does that mean for my life then? Uh, if I inhabit this point in history, right? If I inhabit this space in time where God is actively in the process of deconstructing human empire and the suffering that emerges from that empire, then how does that impact my life here and now? And that is, you know, and I've done this study with, with secular people who've never been to church before um, and approached it from this angle. And it's been like, boom, it's like, wow, like my life, 
you've just given me an actual reason to live, you know, <laughs> um, because they, they find themselves within the story. And it's, you know, basically what we've done is we've taken the doctrine and we've removed it from the religio-centric categories that we've constrained it to and said, actually, this doctrine is not just for Adventists with religio-centric concerns. This is for everybody. This is for humanity. This, this answers questions everyone's asking, not just us. Um, and, and when I go through this study with people, even people, like I said, who aren't Adventists at all, is just this sense of excitement that it reorients the way they live their life every day. And that's, that's cool. So anyways, oh man, I've talked a lot. Um, I hope that that answered your question. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm just fascinated because, you know, because traditionally, like you said, I mean, the, the, the kind of core um, of Daniel 8, 13, 14 is kind of, you know, focused on truth being cast to the ground. And, and like you said, as in that modern phase, the question was, what is truth, right? So, so in essence, you know, the argument has been all this time about uh, proving what is truth. And therefore, if this is truth, then this is what God is restoring. And so, the the focus is is on truth, but truth is almost a feeling now. It's not a um, something that people can all agree on. So, since we live in an age where truth is not agreed upon, we have no um, kind of central organizing uh, story that is, yeah. uh, you know, driving culture. We have multiple stories, and they all kind of interact in some ways but contradict each other and others how would you define it like the the way that people see truth now yeah good question man um huh i think you did a good job um i would add that truth has become particularly since the impact of critical theory in academia right postmodern critical theory the very notion of absolute truth has become synonymous with oppression right and so when you approach the culture with a perspective of absolute truth, this is not saying that we abandon the perspective of absolute truth because truth is absolute. I believe that. Um, but when we approach the culture with a, a, with a very sort of old school, non-nuanced, absolute truth perspective, what that translates to in their psyche is oppression. Mm-hmm. And so then the question is, how do I communicate the beauty of truth as it is in Jesus without awakening those, you know, um, warning flags within them. And, and this requires a totally different approach to our typical evangelistic approach where we're sort of, again, approaching a lot of these questions from the perspective of we're right and everyone else is wrong, you know? Um, and in many ways, you have to resonate with the culture a little bit because when you think about, you know, some of the worst atrocities that have happened, you know, even in just the 20th and 21st century, um, they're all grounded in some version of an abs- of a supposed absolute truth, you know. Um, even if you go back to the Dark Ages, you know, and the, the Crusades, you know, there's this supposed absolute truth that both sides are defending. And look at all the bloodshed, you know. You get to the transatlantic slave trade, and the constructs that Eurocentric society made to justify it were supposedly absolute truth, even claiming science, right? Um, I'm, I'm thinking, I think it was, is it eugenics? The, the, the idea that some races are, um, you know, superior to others in, you know, 
in, inherently superior to others. And this is an absolute truth claim that then justifies the oppression of tribal people, people with dark skin, etc. Right? Um, you look at World War II, and you know what was at play in World War II were absolute truth claims. And so the culture now has this idea where it's like. The moment someone claims an absolute truth, they've created the necessary platform for oppression and violence. And you have to, you don't have to agree with that, but you have to understand like, okay, I can see where you're coming from with that. So let me change my perspective. Let me nuance my approach so that I can actually share what true truth is because true truth is never oppressive. It's liberating. But how can I share true truth with you without immediately awakening those shields and those barriers that you know people have today to protect themselves from the oppression is is a huge key and it's again it's a, like a whole other episode on its own as well right yeah <laughs> um, but that's the thing you know when we come to a doctrine like the investigative judgment um, it's asking the question how can we reorient or, or reframe redesign um, the way we introduce and enter into what this perspective or this idea is wrestling with in a way where the culture feels like they're invited into a journey rather than being, you know, rather than we're putting a straitjacket on you that you must believe in order for us to then add a caveat to that that will make you feel compelled to join our church. You know what I mean? Um, and so that's kind of what we're wrestling with. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so so basically, what you're saying is, be you know beyond just um, taking Daniel eight thirteen and fourteen and 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 you know f- following the timeline and 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 basically pointing to the whole doctrine of the sanctuary and how um, you know the the law of God stands at the at the at the most holy place and. And and therefore, you know, God is is basically trying to restore truth as embodied in in the sanctuary um, diagram um, in in humanity and you know in the universe, so to speak. Um, you know, how do you take these kind of very abstract concepts and uh, which, like you said, even Adventists, lifelong Adventists, have a hard time grappling and and understanding how they have any direct impact on their day-to-day Christianity. How, how did you take these big, big concepts and, and make them practical in your book? Like what, what were you, some of your um, practical illustrations or applications that you came up with? Yeah, very good question, man. So one of the things I talk about in the book is the need to redesign the way that we teach the doctrine. And this is something I talk about later in the book after I've gone through the redesign, you know, um, of the doctrine itself, then I talk about like, let's redesign the way we teach it. You know, So there's the redesign of the doctrine and the redesign of the teaching of the doctrine. Um, and one of the points that I make is, you know, one of the challenges that I have had repeatedly, and look, I'm not like tooting my own horn here, but I am a pretty good sort of charismatic teacher slash preacher, right? So most people generally don't have a hard time following what I'm saying. But when it came to the investigative judgment, I was still losing people. 
right? Left, right, and center. And the reason is, is just too much, right? It's way too complex. There's so many metaphors. There's so many archetypes. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, this giant, you know, you got, you got timeline and you got this sanctuary with all these symbols. And, you know, I mean, the concept of a sanctuary itself is already, you know, foreign to the modern right. age. And then you've got all this symbology. You have all this typology. You've got all the numerology. And then on top of that, you have the apocalyptic language, which is confusing in and of itself. And it's like we dump all this onto people in the first study, you know, or the first sermon. And it's like, oh, well, I split it between two or three. Yeah, that doesn't help much. You know? um, and it's just too much, right? It's way too much too soon. And so what I suggest is we do with this doctrine what we do with every other doctrine on the face of the planet. You separate its... its um, exploration into different layers. And we do this with all other doctrines, right? Like the doctrine of the salvation, for example. There are books out there that cover the doctrine of salvation that are as big as an encyclopedia. And then there are books like Steps to Christ that have like, you know, like barely a hundred pages, right? Um, And so the question is, how can we make the doctrine of the investigative judgment something that is not only relevant the moment someone encounters encounters it the first time, but also super simple. And the two are intertwined, right? When you aim for a very simple manifestation of the doctrine, then you can actually put aside the areas that aren't immediately um, necessary and focus on the areas that are immediately necessary. And you you can develop a relevant framework that even a kid can understand. Right. Um, let me let me jump in here. So so basically, yep. I think that you just hit a point point point. Um, that the true understanding of, of something, the more you understand it, the more simply you can explain it. And the less you understand it, the more you have to use to explain it. So it's almost like the, 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 if you can say it in less words, it shows that you grasp it in, in a, in a greater, um, in greater detail. So, so this is important, I think, because I, I hope. I mean, maybe you're about to get into that, but I, I'm really curious to see like how you were able to um, simplify this for yourself in a way that you could explain it. Um, you know, like you said, to, so a child could understand it. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So I talk about it a lot more in the book um, than than you know I'll be able to expand on here, but I think I can still give you the you know the working sort of framework. Um, you know, in case someone's like, look, I don't have you know, money for a book or time to read. Um, you can, if you want to, you can just go to the storychurchproject.com and, and get it there. Um, but for, you know, for those who can't or who just, you know, quite frankly, don't want to, here is the, uh, the short version. Um, so the way I propose, and this is what I do, and, you know, you may not agree with it and that's okay, but this is mm-hmm. what I do. I, I separate the teaching of the doctrine into three layers. The first layer is the real sort of simple we're hitting the broad categories, the main themes, right? Um, and that's all I am interested in for a person to say, yeah, I'd like to be baptized and join the Adventist church. That layer doesn't include the timeline. Mm-hmm. It doesn't include, you know, going through um, all the numbers and the years and the dates and all of that. Mm-hmm. That's the second layer, right? So the second layer of teaching is where a person can actually get into the timeline. And here's the thing. What I found is that people are more interested in the timeline when they have discovered that the overall theme that the doctrine is pointing to is meaningful for them, mm-hmm. right? When something becomes meaningful for someone, now the elements that would have been boring and overwhelming become a little, they're a little bit more invested in figuring them out, you know? 
Um, and so the first layer for me is all I need to say for someone to say, yeah, I'd love to join the Adventist movement. And, and then I believe in discipleship, right? And this is something a lot of our churches struggle with. We don't have discipleship strategies, which means when a person is baptized, that's it. It's done. Their journey is over. Where do they go from here, right? Um, and I think that's a big weakness in Adventism. And so I say, look, all of our churches need to have discipleship pathways where a person is baptized and they can, there's an automatic next step for them to dig deeper. And a part of that next step is going deeper into um, the core things that make, you know, Adventist, uh, the Adventist narrative, what it is. And, and that involves this. And so in the second layer, I then go a little bit deeper. We, we look a little bit more at typology, the symbology and the timeline, right? And by this point, because the person's invested already in what the overall doctrine means, they're more willing to, to sort of um, assimilate or chew on, on the more complex themes. And then the third layer is where I go actually deeper into theology and I look at, you know, how does the 2300-day prophecy and, and what, it say, what it says relate to um, the, all the different, you know, there's all these different theological models out there on how we understand who God is and what he's like. And, and so I go into that at the third layer. And that's an even deeper layer, which um, I explain a little bit more in the book. So on the first layer, all I want is for people to understand what is the point? Like, what is the theme? What, what story is being told by this? And like I said to you earlier, um, essentially what we're seeing is that there is this, this question that's been asked of how long. And then the answer to that question is this 2300-day prophecy. And so when this 2300-day prophecy ends, what we can begin to see is the answer to the how long question, right? The deconstruction of suffering of human empire. That's essentially what the entire book of Daniel is about. It's about these human empire versus God's kingdom, right? And the two are in complete clash, like they don't mix. We see this from the very beginning. It's repeated in every single chapter in Daniel, this theme of the two kingdoms. Uh, and so when you approach it from this narrative, you're telling the story of these two kingdoms in conflict and that what the 2300 days essentially leads us to is the final phase of this war and that in this final phase, God is deconstructing human empire. He's deconstructing suffering. He's bringing things back to their original design. So when this phase is over, the, basically, humanity is primed for a total takeover of God's kingdom. And, you know, when we talk about like the restoration of the sanctuary, right? I don't shy away from the sanctuary. I think it's an important element that we need to discuss. Um, but what I do is I ask a simple question, like what does the sanctuary represent in scripture, right? And you can answer that question without going into any of the symbology. And, oh boy, the, the particular text escapes me right now, but Exodus, you know, where God tells the people of Israel, I want you to build me a sanctuary so I can dwell among you, right? That's it. The sanctuary represents God's desire to be with people. Like that is all someone needs to know in the first layer. They don't need all the crazy typology and symbology. They just need to know, here's what the sanctuary represents. God wants to be with people. That is it. And you can interact with that and how that relates to this final phase and this war between the two kingdoms and God restoring his sanctuary. Right? He's restoring his witness, his connection with humanity. His, and, and that's how the story ends, right? Revelation 21, God himself will be with his people and they, he will be their God and they will be his people. And then it repeats it again and God will be with them, right? This concept of witness, that's the sanctuary. And so at that level, all I'm doing is I'm hitting those really broad themes and showing people why this matters 
And, and then, of course, the main theme is like, what is the applicatory power? Like, what difference does this make in your life in the here and now um, that, I, that we focus on as well? And so that's how I separate it. And, you know, that's how I've done it for some time now. And maybe over the years, I'll adapt that and make it better. Um, but at the moment, that's what I would say is like, give people the broad themes. Tell what story is being told here. And then once someone has that sort of like that emotional connection, that investment into the story that's being told, you can go into a second layer and say, all right, now let's take a look at, you know, some more of the symbols and the typology and stuff. And at that point, the, the mind will be more ready to assimilate that stuff because they're more invested in it. Um, so I hope that answers your question. That's sort of like a quick answer. I, obviously, I go into more detail in the book. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I hope, hope that helps. Yeah, no, it definitely um, is, like you said, it's it's a, it's such a deep topic that you can almost just take a left or right turn and you can <laughs> you can end in yeah. a lot of different places. Um, and, and so I think what you were just saying is, is important. Um, just the three layers, the, the recognition of, of the, um, just the overall theme of Daniel, which I appreciated you bringing that out about the, just the two kingdoms. Um, I, I, I think that that really, you know, brings um, a lot of the questions that, that people have when they're studying the book of Daniel together, because it is ultimately about the, the restoration of God's kingdom and, and it and what that all entails, of course, then you you can ask Jesus, right? Because I mean, that's basically what Jesus came to to teach. Yeah. And and you look at his parables, right? And it's interesting how many of his parables. I'm sure you've noticed this connect back to this doctrine um, mm-hmm. of judgment and ultimately restoration, right? I mean, each and every one of them almost. I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say all of them, but uh, I mean, pretty much they they're all basically telling the story of what. The kingdom of God is and what it looks like and what he is essentially doing um, or wanting to do or beginning in his time on earth. But but what we're seeing here in the last days is, and what this prophecy I think is what you're saying is pointing to, is the everything that Jesus was talking about um, begins to happen um, on a worldwide scale with a group of people the Bible calls the remnant. And then there's another power that um, is opposing that, represented by the kingdoms of this world, and there's this ultimate conflict that ultimately God um, comes and intervenes on behalf of his people and rescues them from this earth, um, ultimately giving them eternity in this kingdom that he had laid out the, the vision for in his time when he was on earth and ultimately died for for each of us. So I, I think there's just an endless amount of, of, uh, interesting, uh, ways you could look at this, but, um, just for the sake of time, um, just how does this kind of, you know, I kind of mentioned a little bit, but for you, like, how does this all relate back to the second coming? Cause as Adventists, you know, that is the ultimate thing that we are looking for. And even in this podcast, Adventology, you know, my tagline is, you know, be ready for Jesus. So for someone who's, you know, saying, hey, you know, how does this, how does understanding the investigative judgment, maybe I haven't studied it very much, maybe I want to go pick up your book, but how does this ultimately help me be ready for Jesus? What would you say? Yeah, that's a really good question, man. Um, I want to go back to this concept. You brought it up quite a few times in our talk of story, 
mm-hmm. right? Because I think, I think that's ultimately what we're dealing with here is there is a story being told mm-hmm. in scripture. Uh, and that's part of our challenge. That's part of the reason why our, 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 we've lacked the relevance that, you know, especially when it comes to this doctrine, because, you know, once we get to it, we get so bogged down in details that we miss the story. And then even then, when we try and sort of frame it as a story, we're, we're framing it in a, in a way that makes sense to the collective us rather than to the culture. And so what I see when, I, when I'm reading this story from the culture, you know, if I'm reading it with the eyes of someone who's wanting to connect it to the general culture, to humanity, is that there is a story being told here, right? There's this perpetual interplay of human empire that's like a vacuum depleting and consuming uh, existence of the thing it was made for, right? The beauty, harmony, this withness that we were made for, withness with God. And, and so there's this being in heaven who's sick of it, right? And there's this context where the church is the main, has emerged as the primary or, or the apex of human empire, right? It turns mm-hmm. out to be the church, like, holy cow, right? <laughs> um, and, and so there's this being in heaven who's sick of it. And he's like, how long? You know, like this, is, this has been going on for forever. I want it to end. And we don't often think about, you know, the suffering of angels. And, and, but that's what we capture here is this being who kind of loses it. He's like, how long is this going to go on for? And it's like, wait, pause. That's the question. That's the cry of the human heart, right? And, and the 2300-day prophecy is an answer to this deep existential question that we all ask. And so I think for me, just to get back you know, to the, the question that you're asking is that there's, there's deep theological implications here. Um, and, and it's that at the conclusion of this prophetic fi- timeline, we, we enter into this final phase of human empire. Um, and in this final phase, God is establishing the milieu for this complete and total takeover of human empire. Like it's going to be completely annihilated. Suffering, self-centeredness, opportunism, predatory ethics, all of it is going away. Mm-hmm. And so the implications are if human empire, which is what our entire lives and our, den- and our identity are constructed on, if that's all in the process of being deconstructed and deleted, then why remain tethered to it, right? And I think this is becoming so apparent today as society kind of begins to shut down with this virus. And it's like all the things that we sort of associated or built our our hope, our foundation, our destiny, our identity on, they've all gone away. You know, even our economies are beginning to sort of crumble. And it's like the thing that looked so powerful just a month ago is obviously super fragile today. Like we can see it, you know, like the most powerful corporations are laying thousands of people off. They're asking for bailouts, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, I thought you guys were untouchable, you know? And you've got this microscopic bug that circulates the globe and everything falls apart. And it's like, this is the point that, it, that God is making in, in, in most of apocalyptic prophecy is the human empire is this fragile, unstable um, thing and that if you're tethered to it, you've, you're, 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 you're tethered to nothing, right? This is the essential theme of Jesus' parable of the man who built his house on sand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I've got this vision that I'm contending with and that I'm wrestling with, what it, what it does is it reorients my life and allegiance toward another kingdom. And, and here's where I want to also emphasize something that you said earlier. This is not an idea that's exclusive to the doctrine of the investigative judgment. It's all over scripture, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's a point that I make really strongly in the book as well, because 
the, the investigative judgment is not a novel idea that gives us something previously unheard of in the Bible. And I think sometimes Adventists are like, oh, you know, if you don't believe the investigative judgment, um, then, um, you know, it's like there's this secret within the doctrine that you absolutely need to know that you can't find anywhere else. And if you don't know it, you know, you're in danger. It's like, actually, the main themes that it highlights are everywhere in scripture. Um, so what the investigative judgment is, is it's part of a story. Right? It's part of the scriptural narrative that amplifies the narrative in an apocalyptic sense with Jesus and his kingdom at the center. And that's really important to note because the idea here is not that we're trying to find novel things in the Bible that nobody ever heard of before, but that we're following the storyline to where it's leading us. And, and this is where it shows us that we are right now in human history. Like we're in this final phase where all the human empires, including the church, right? The church is the apex of human empire in these visions. It's all going to be deconstructed. So like, what are you tied to? What are you tethered to? Um, and so coming back to like a real practical sort of pragmatic level, um, if human empire is being deconstructed and this includes the church, so then what does that belief do to me politically, socially, and existentially? Like, like where does it leave me? Um, and I think it presents us with a kind of, maybe to get a little bit specific, with the present age that we're in, it presents us with a kind of antidote to this absolute partisan allegiance that I see a lot of Christians falling into, right? Um, where it's like, ah, if you're really a follower of Jesus, you'd be a Republican. No, you'd be a Democrat. And it's like, actually, that's human empire and it's all coming undone, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it detaches us from the value structures of this world and orients our lives toward the reversal of this beastly impulse of self, which is basically what all human empire is built on. So that my faith actually becomes about more than just going to church and going through the motions, but it's really this metamorphosis of, of who I am and, and I'm being changed from, you know, at the very absolute essence, central essence of who I am. And this is, I was having this Bible study with this secular guy, right? And I was walking him through this. Um, and we were working through all these things and kind of arriving at the at the epicenter of, of what this means practically. And, and so I said to him, you know, like on a very practical level, what this means is that as God is deconstructing all of the pillars of human empire with the suffering that it causes and, you know, all the, the just beastly things that come with it, what he's inviting his people to do is he's inviting his people to partner with him. And to be essentially, I borrowed this phrase from uh, Nathan, Nathan Brown, who he borrowed it from someone else, but I don't know who it was. <laughs> but essentially, God's calling us to, to join him and to be agents of reversal in our world, right? To be agents of reversal in suffering. And he kind of looked at me and he's like, and I was having this Bible study with him because he had gotten to the point where he was so sick of, you know, religious people telling him, you know, what God had planned for his life. And they were using these categories that made no sense to him. And he was getting ready to quit the whole thing. And I said, look, what God really wants to do with you right now in this phase of human history is he wants you to partner with him. He wants you to be an agent of reversal, right? Every morning when you wake up, you think God is deconstructing the empires of this world and the suffering that comes with them. How can I be a part of reversing suffering today, right? How can I be a part of that deconstruction of human empire and, and actually spread love and harmony and, and hope in a world that is pretty much rooted in suffering? And his eyes just opened up. And then, you know, he was like, man, that's such a meaningful way to live. He's like, I definitely want to do it. The next day he texts me and he's like, oh man, good morning, agent of reversal, Marcus. You know, <laughs> like this real silly text message, you know, but it kind of hit him like there, there's applicatory power to this. Like there's a way 
in which this doctrine actually impacts my conduct on a daily basis. And that's really meaningful, you know? And so when Jesus returns and he returns to establish this new kingdom, human empire has been undone, right? And this final phase is our final opportunity, uh, you know, to, and there's, there's a few different directions I can go in this, but I blabber a lot. So I got to try and constrain myself so it doesn't get <laughs> all over the place. But in this final phase, right, um, to get back directly to your initial question, um, as human empires being deconstructed, then it kind of leaves us with two things. Like it's our final opportunity to determine which kingdom we belong to, right? Like once Jesus comes, a person is either tethered to the empire of self or the kingdom of other centered love. Like I'm either immersed in this sort of transcendental kingdom or I'm bound to my national allegiances. It can't be both, right? So it's an opportunity to decide. And it's also the final opportunity to, to get this message out to the world in, in a way where people are like, yes, I want to be a part of God's kingdom, right? I want to be a part of this thing, which is essentially the essence of Daniel as well. There's one kingdom that never ends. All the others, they're temporal. Uh, they, can't, they can't last forever because they, they implode. They eat themselves, you know, um, kind of like uh, cancer cells. They eat everything around them and then they have nothing left. So they just, you know, die off as well. This is how human empire works. And so it's this final phase. It's like, this is the point in history in which it's all going to come undone and it's, it's, it's all entering into judgment. And so where do we belong? Where, where do I belong? And how do I reach out to the communities around me in relevant and meaningful ways to draw them into this kingdom of other centered love in a way from allegiance to human empire? Um, that's, that's essentially what I believe is the most meaningful aspect in how it relates to the second coming. And like I said, it's not novel to the investigative judgment, but it's amplified by it in a really powerful way. Yeah, and I think that's so important because I, I, I just, a lot of times when people are, you know, studying or contemplating um, prophecy and, and especially apocalyptic um, prophecy, you know, there's this tendency, like I think you mentioned earlier, to connect it to fear. Um, mm. But the reality is, I think, if I hear you correctly, is that when we understand the investigative judgment, we understand that the, the, what God is truly doing in his church, through his church in the last days, it's it's all about restoration. It's all about um, the, uh, the the magnification of kingdom principles in this world. It, it's it's about glorifying, maybe not physically, but um, glorifying through through our actions the who God is, and and He's giving this world, this one final look at, at, at who he is through this group of people. And so instead of, instead of causing us, at least those of us who are embracing this doctrine as, as truth, instead of causing us to, to kind of pull back as we see ourselves getting closer to the second coming of Jesus, I think when we understand this doctrine properly, like what I hear you saying is, no, it should compel us to move forward. Like we should want yeah. to go out into the world. We want to. We want to show the world, you know, who God is, and that can only happen when we are out there um, relieving suffering. So, um, what is it, you know, as you as you look at at everything happening in the world right now, and as you contemplate um, your study and your experience with God, and and how you see Him working now. What gives you hope as you move forward with this knowledge and uh, 
and in how how do you express that to the world around you right now yeah well i would say um within the theme of uh the you know investigative judgment as we've been discussing i'd say that the fact that in the in the investigative judgment i find this really I find this really grounded, solid call to be this agent of reversal, to live each day with the goal of reversing the impact of empire by extending love and grace, right? By lending my voice to humanitarian justice. And really, it doesn't have to be a big thing. Like some people hear those words and they think, oh, you know, how do I do that? I'm just a normal Joe Schmo. But it's simply by manifesting the character of Jesus to people around me, right? Like in that simple act, that tiny, small act, I can, you know, I am reversing suffering and to live each day with that, you know, with that call over my life, like that God is undoing the principles and empires and structures of this world. So let me not be bound to them, right? Let me live this countercultural, anti-conformist life where I am reversing the very impact of Satan's kingdom, right? Of man's kingdom through my daily life. Um, to me, that just gives me so much hope because what it does is, you know, there's this sort of thing that a lot of secular people complain about when it comes to Christians. And it, you know, it goes all the way back to Nietzsche. Um, and it's this idea, and, and really even further back than Nietzsche to, to Marx, and it's this idea that um, Christians live in this pie in the sky, right? They, they are so focused on getting, escaping this world to this eternal pie that they become of no good in the present sufferings that we we are experiencing. Uh, and, and they just, you know, kind of shove everything off to the pie in the sky and they make no difference in the world around them. And I think that the investigative judgment properly understood as a doctrine undoes that criticism of Marx and Nietzsche because what it does is it calls us to, to find our hope, not in a pie in the sky, but in the present call here and now to be agents of reversal of suffering. And as I participate in God's reversal, uh, I can be a part of connecting others to his eternal kingdom and, and seeing that take place in people's lives. Um, that is, that's definitely what gives me hope today. And, and I think the tragedy, you know, I can close with this. I think the tragedy for so much of our history as a church is that the investigative judgment, it's been constrained to religio-centric concerns that mean nothing to people who are not already one of us. And within those religio-centric concerns, it's been constrained even further to a doctrine that's really about me. You know, all oh, the investigative judgments happening. Will I, will I make it through? Will I get to heaven? You know, and, and so the concern becomes me, 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 me. And as you look throughout the history of the world, and I mentioned this in the book, throughout the history of North America in particular, you have this group of people with this amazing doctrine that calls us to be agents of reversal of suffering. But it, we haven't understood it that way, like ever, um, or I, I would say the pioneers had a, you know, a strong inkling toward it, but there's this sense in which after the pioneers, this kind of got lost and it just became this, you know, academic ivory tower type of idea. So the church navigates through the Jim Crow era and mimics the, the, um, it mimics the empire 
of of the world, right? It mimics the racism and、um, the inequality that we saw during the Jim Crow era, when we should have been the people raising the loudest loudest voice against it, because we're living in the final phase. God is deconstructing human empire. Why the heck are we mimicking the racism and inequality of the world, right? And we see this as well during World War II, where the German Adventist Church basically became. You know, I don't want to use the word complicit, like in a, in a sort of dramatic sense, but there was a sense in which the church held the hands of the Third Reich, and even after all this stuff came to light, some of the leaders in the German church were still sort of like, "Yeah, you know, we support the Reich and we support Hitler," and it's like, why? You know, like why are you tethering yourself to human empire? And we saw the same in apartheid in South Africa, where many churches. We're complicit with supporting apartheid, you know, and and so this is the point that I'm getting at. It's like, where is our voice as a prophetic community, you know, during these times where we just we tether ourselves to human empire, we operate according to the value structures of human empire instead of speaking truth to power because we believe that God is currently right now in the process of deconstructing these empires. Um, and I think if we really took that to heart, and we lived individually and collectively lives that were oriented toward the reversal of suffering, which is caused by empire, that we would eventually, we would eventually be the catalyst for persecution because you cannot stand for the kingdom of God in these ways and and be considered safe. This is why Jesus was killed. Jesus was unsafe to the establishment. He was an affront to the political establishments of the day. Because he he said it to Pilate, like my kingdom's of another world, right? Like that's what I represent, and that's why these people want to get rid of me because I represent a threat to everything that they have put their hopes in. And and I think this is what the investigative judgment is calling us to, man: complete detethering of ourselves to human empire can lead us to become a kind of community that speaks truth to power in such a way that、um, you know we we will see an ushering in of the kingdom of God. Thanks for listening to this episode of Adventology. Our goal in this podcast is for you to be ready for Jesus, and the best way to be ready for Jesus is to spend time getting to know Him. Knowing Jesus is everything. That is why we spent the time today talking about the investigative judgment with Pastor Marcos Torres. But don't just take our word for it; study it out for yourself. And for a hands-on experience, I encourage you to check out our website, Adventology.com. Where you can get a transcript of today's episode, along with any of the previous episodes we've already published, including episode 11 and 34, where I go into greater depth studying the biblical support behind this doctrine. Also, don't forget to pick up Marcus's book at thestorybookproject.com. All right, well, I enjoyed our time together today, and、I、look forward to seeing you back here on our next episode of Adventology. Until then, Maranatha.